Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Nick McGore, our retail banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. And also from Milan, we're joined by our correspondent there, Rachel Sanderson. This week, we'll be discussing Royal Bank of Scotland as the UK government sells down a £2.5 billion stake, a look at the outage trouble at Visa Europe last week, and finally, an examination of the prospects for a merger deal between Italy's Unicredit and France's Société Générale. First, though, to RBS. And Nick, you've been kept busy overnight with this £2.5 billion placing that the government has done, selling down its stake from, what, about 70%. About a tenth of that has been sold. Is this a landmark start of the sell-down, finally? Yeah, I mean, it's been a really long time coming for the government and the bank, but they are finally back on the path to getting rid of their holding in RBS, coming up on a decade since they rescued them. Which, of course, listeners will remember, was the biggest bailout of the financial crisis, £45 billion or more, back in 2008. And as you say, it's been a long time coming. So a lot of kind of focus really on the fact that they're making more than £2 billion loss in terms of the market value of the sale today compared with how much the bailout was valued at. But is that a fair comparison? Yeah, it actually came in at around £2.1 loss. So they sold the shares overnight for 271 pence each compared to they paid about 502p each during the crisis the criticism to an extent it's a little bit unfair nobody was looking at rvs in 2008 going this is a great investment for the government it was a rescue to prevent an even bigger crisis they were never really intending to make money from it what you could question them on maybe is whether this was the perfect timing to start the sale and maybe the losses could have been minimised a little bit more. Volatility caused by all the kind of Italian political uncertainty last week delayed the early plans for a sale. And although the market picked up a bit in the last couple of days, the price was still lower than perhaps it might have been. So how significant is it, the fact that they've chosen now, actually when the markets have been looking fairly jittery over the past few days? That's one question that some people have been asking, you know, why now particularly? Obviously, it comes on the back of them having settled a big mortgage-backed securities scandal, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So their prospects look more secure, but I suppose European markets don't look more secure. So why sell now? And what does it mean about the next tranche going forward? There's a couple of factors at play. Part of it is that even after this sale, the government still holds about 62% of the bank. It's going to take ages to get rid of the whole thing. And they wanted to get the process started, especially after the bank reached a settlement with the Department of Justice a couple of weeks ago. Everyone was expecting something to come before the summer. Yeah, as you say, market's not looking super steady at the moment. There is some suggestion from people close to the deal that although conditions might not be perfect at the moment, they kind of never are going to be. And there's bigger risks coming up in the next couple of weeks with future Brexit discussions. 
So yeah, I suppose, Nick, the point is on the timing of this, it's not the greatest juncture in the markets, given the jitters caused by Italy over the past few days. So to go now, I suppose, signals perhaps that the government thinks this is going to be as good as it gets and the outlook from here isn't great. We will keep our eye on that topic going forward. Thanks, Nick. And staying with you, let's move on now to our second item and Visa Europe. You were looking at this fairly panicked outage of Visa Europe at the end of last week, Friday afternoon mainly, when a lot of people across Britain and the rest of Europe found they couldn't use their visa cards. Yeah, it came at the worst possible time, really, on a sunny Friday afternoon around the time people were leaving work for the weekend. Visa blamed a hardware failure for the problems that left businesses and customers across Europe unable to make or receive any payments on their cards. It didn't affect everyone in any particular country, but given the size of Visa's network, even a small percentage of people being affected adds up to large numbers of businesses losing cash. It certainly caused a Twitter storm, didn't it? But it was resolved by late on Friday, is that right? By kind of late Friday evening, they said that they'd addressed the initial failure that had led stuff to stop being processed. And then the update the next day left by that point, what they said was a small number of customers still having particular issues with banks who maybe when payments had tried to go through and they'd been blocked. I suppose this raises a question of, you know, it's yet another IT outage at a big financial company. We had TSB's systems going down a few weeks ago. What can regulators do about this? This is obviously going to become increasingly an issue, the stability of IT in these businesses. Yeah, it is, especially as more and more payments are made digitally, not through cash. So Visa Europe is regulated by the Bank of England, who said themselves in a report earlier this year that they expect firms like Visa to be able to absorb the impact of an unexpected event without losing their critical functions. And on Tuesday morning, the head of the Commons Treasury Select Committee, Nicky Morgan, has written to the company demanding answers. So we may see more investigations to come over this. Let me bring Caroline in here, because we've been talking in recent weeks about, I suppose, the general shift of regulators' focus away from core banks and core insurers and so on to these other companies that are increasingly dominant in areas of finance, whether that be technology companies and cloud services. Here, it's slightly more central to finance, a credit card company, uh, but not one really that the Bank of England has had much to do with as a regulator previously. What role can they play? Well, yes and no, I would say to that, Patrick. I mean, it comes under the Bank of England's financial market infrastructure team. And in an event like this, basically what happens is the FMI supervisors who do the day-to-day supervision of Visa Europe and other payment systems providers would basically talk to possibly the enforcement and litigation team at the Bank of England if they think that an investigation is warranted. Insiders have told me that typically over the last few years, there have been very few cases where this has actually happened. And in fact, the powers only really changed in 2012 to enable there to be proper investigations and fining powers on FMIs. I guess another delicious piquant detail in this is that Visa Europe's CEO is Charlotte Hogg, who is a former deputy governor of the Bank of England. Well, she was a deputy governor for about four weeks before she had to step down over a conflict of interest. But she, of course, knows very well how the Bank of England works. Indeed. Well, it'll be instructive to follow the story through and hopefully there won't be any more outages anytime soon. Let's move on to our third and final topic. Martin, we have the prospect, albeit perhaps a distant one, of a merger between Italy's Unicredit and France's Societe Generale, as we reported this week. 
it's a deal that the Unicredit CEO, Jean-Pierre Mustier, seems to be quite keen on, partly for personal reasons. He used to work at Socgen and is a Frenchman. But also there is an industrial logic in combining these two banks and creating a much bigger European institution. What do you think the prospects are for this deal, especially given the tumult politically in Italy of late? Well, just as an aside, I think it's interesting this idea of bank chief executives being interested in doing deals with banks where they used to work because we had a similar story with Barclays and Standard Chartered and John McFarlane, the chairman of Barclays, who's the orchestrator of that idea, used to work at Standard Chartered. So now you've got Jean-Pierre Moustier at Unicredit looking longingly towards his former employer, Société Générale, across the Alps in France. However, given the current political situation and the state of markets in Italy, I think most people are pretty sceptical about the prospect of such a deal happening anytime soon. I would give three main reasons. One is the market turmoil that we saw last week. If there's a repetition of that or if that volatility in markets increases the Italian banks are big holders of Italian sovereign bonds. So that kind of volatility feeds directly into their creditworthiness and their stability. Secondly, the populist government is dominated by anti-foreigner feeling. So the idea that this anti-foreigner populist government could somehow engineer a massive 60 billion plus euro merger with a French bank under the much more open and pro-European government of Emmanuel Macron in France seems highly unlikely. But finally, I think the crucial thing in the longer term for pan-European banking consolidation in general is when you talk to the bank bosses, what they say is really an essential ingredient to allow those kind of deals to have the benefits they would need is the completion of Eurozone Banking Union, in particular the creation of a common deposit guarantee scheme, which would allow for the free flow of bank liquidity and capital across borders within the Eurozone. And the election, I'm afraid, of a populist government in Italy just puts that back and stymies that prospect for the foreseeable future. So I think that those are the negative factors weighing against such a deal happening anytime soon. Well, let me bring Rachel Sanderson in now from Milan. Rachel, thanks ever so much for joining us. What's your perspective? I think what's interesting, if we look at the timing and the speed of change we've seen with the political situation, big cross-border deals in the past in Italy historically have taken place during a government interregnum. So when we've been between governments, And let's say this time last week, it still looked like there was a possibility we might be between governments for a period of time. If you recall, about this time last week, the discussions were that we were going to get another technocratic government. And at that stage, I think it looked to bankers in Milan and also bankers in France, let's say bankers in Germany, that there was a possibility that Europe was going to get one of these windows where we've seen deals attempts in the past. There was Atlantia which then with Autostrada, with Abertis in Spain, tried one a few years ago, which was eventually blocked by a left-wing government. So I think that in terms of the speed of change, there looked like there might be a space. Of course, ultimately what we saw is that there was such an outcry about the idea of another technocratic government being put in place that Mattarella, the president of Italy, swung back and then gave the option to put a government in place to the Five Star and the Lega and... As we know in the past, and we've known for many years, the Lega in particular, who have been running Milan 
and were in the very strong and influence inside banks, including Unicredit, for many years through the banking foundations, are very opposed to the idea of cross-border mergers and, in fact, were instrumental with Alessandro Profumo, the former chief executive of Unicredit, were instrumental in foiling talks he had in about 2002-2003 to do a merger with SOCGEN, and then were also instrumental behind the scenes in the exit of Profumo in 2010 from Unicredit, when he was also looking again at, at let's say, cross-border activity. It was a very interesting point you made there about M&A deals maybe being more feasible in interregnum periods of government, because, of course, the average tenure of a post-war Italian government is barely more than a year. And that would chime quite nicely if we fast forward a year and a bit to the timetable that Unicredit actually would love to do something on. They think they've got a year or 18 months more of work to do domestically before they'd be ready to do a deal. What if this government fell in the summer of 2019? Can you see then a new window opening? Um, I think what's interesting is I've been here for the Financial Times for about seven years and I've done five governments, nearly six governments during that period. So they do come and go with enormous speed. So I think what we know from reporting and from what we're hearing on the ground, we've hearing from sources for many months, is that you have bankers across the Eurozone putting their slide rule over these prospective deals all the time and all the numbers and everything and everything's ready to move if that were necessary, whether they were looking at, you know, cross-border France, Italy, cross-border Italy, Germany, Germany, France, etc. You know, and it all depends on the incident. But definitely with my knowledge of sort of watching Italy over the past years, these things often heat up when you know that they've got a government situation or political situation that won't be such an obstacle to a deal taking place. Well, we'll keep watching it for as long as it takes. Thanks very much, Rachel, for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Nick and Caroline here in the studio and also from Milan, Rachel Sanderson. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.